Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon, on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Research is Not the Answer. If the title of this podcast sounds familiar, it is because it is a quote from none other than Dallin H. Oaks. I am recording this podcast at the end of February 2019. Less than a month ago, in early February of this year, Dallin H. Oaks went to Chicago where he addressed the young married Latter-day Saints in that area. This was reported in the Church News, February 5th, 2019 edition. According to the article, President Oaks acknowledged that some Latter-day Saint couples face conflicts over important values and priorities. He then said, matters of church history and doctrinal issues have led some spouses to inactivity. So what he's talking about is the fact that amongst married Latter-day Saints, frequently one spouse will study church history, doctrinal issues, and that study will lead them away from the church, leaving the remaining spouse as the active member. In such situations, he said, some spouses, that would be the remaining active spouse, some spouses wonder how to best go about researching and responding to such issues. So if you are the remaining active spouse in a situation like this, it would be very natural for you to want to understand and research the issues that led your spouse out of the church. Elder Oak's advice to such spouses was, quote, I suggest that research is not the answer, unquote. Now, on the one hand, this comment is just another in a growing list of comments by leaders of the church trying to direct the members away from researching church history outside of the approved church curriculum and the correlated resources and manuals provided by the church, which are designed to give a one-sided, faith-promoting version of church history and which the members are encouraged to limit their study to. But on the other hand, this comment was deeply troubling to me, and I've been dealing with why it is that this comment has been so troubling to me. And I think the reason that I'm so troubled by this comment is because when I joined the church 40 years ago, the message from the leaders of the church was completely different. Not only at that time were we told that research was the answer, we were encouraged to research the scriptures, to research church history, to find out everything we could about Mormonism. And I took that admonition seriously. I spent 40 years then of my life, my entire adult life, spending countless hours studying Mormonism, researching Mormonism, writing about Mormonism. And when I say Mormonism, I'm using that right now as shorthand for the scriptures and the standard works, the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. I'm using it as shorthand for church history, and I'm using it as shorthand for studying everything related to the scriptures and church history, whether it took me into the early church history of the New Testament or studies of the Old Testament. My studies have led me to in-depth research in the scriptures. I have now read the Book of Mormon well over 20 times, probably approaching 30. I stopped keeping track at 20 because once you get to 20, really, what's the point of keeping track anymore? I have read the Bible through a number of times as well and done a great deal of study on specific parts of the scriptures. In addition to that, I have read literally hundreds of books related to Mormonism. And whereas I cannot possibly remember all the titles of the books that I've read, I'll mention a few of them as we go along. Because what I want to do tonight is to give you a 20,000 foot view of my career researching 
Mormonism in hopes of helping you understand and helping myself process my feelings of being deeply troubled by this comment of Elder Oaks, who, as the first counselor in the first presidency of the LDS Church, when he's making these comments, certainly can be seen as speaking for the church as a whole. First, I want to play an audio clip from the 1984 October General Conference in which Hugh W. Pinnock gave a talk titled, Learning Our Father's Will. In this talk, he encourages studying the scriptures. In fact, he uses somewhat pejorative language for those who do not study their scriptures. I'm going to play a couple of relevant quotes from this talk just to establish the fact that this was part of the milieu of my experience in the church when I was young and the types of messages we were hearing at that time. Play the tape. What can we do to keep ourselves more in tune doctrinally with our Heavenly Father? There are three simple steps. First, attend our church meetings. Several years ago we were given a meeting schedule that consolidated formal worship into a three-hour time frame. To each is given the identical commodity of 168 hours each week. The nave is given the same amount of time as the night. The scriptural scholar is given the same amount of time as the doctrinal dumbo. Yes, for three hours each week, we are asked to attend our formal church meetings to become familiar with the Word of God. Second, study the scriptures with family, with other members, with friends but also search the words of God in private contemplation. Search the scriptures as they relate to our priesthood, Relief Society, Sunday School Young Women, and Primary Lessons. Study the scriptures for additional enlightenment on how to be more happy and less frustrated in what only too often is at least temporarily a sad and dreary world. Each four years we are guided carefully through all of the scriptures in the adult curriculum of the Church. In a lifetime, each member can become a spiritual scriptorian instead of remaining a scriptural simpleton. How blessed we are to have our four books of Scripture, in an addition that includes efficient indexes, chapter headings, and other study guides, such as other study helps, such as the topical guide. So you can see that not only was studying the scriptures considered to be the answer, it was actually encouraged. And if you didn't study the scriptures, you were considered not only a doctrinal dumbo, but also a scriptural simpleton. Well, I joined the church, as I've said a number of times before, in 1978. It was June of 1978, and I had basically no religious background whatsoever. So I hit the ground running. I realized that I knew next to nothing about Mormonism or about the Bible, the Old Testament or the New Testament, except for a few stories I had picked up along the way. And at the time, I was so naive that I thought that learning everything there was to know about Mormonism was the same thing as learning the contents of the missionary discussions. I did not have a set of scriptures when I joined the church, but a friend of mine gave me their old scriptures when the friend got a new set of scriptures. So my scriptures were a hand-me-down set, a Bible, and a triple combination. 
And I think that my involvement during my first few months in the church with my scriptures was pretty much the same involvement that most members of the church had. I would take my scriptures to church with me. I would open them up and look up the references that were read in Sunday school. And then when I went home from church, the scriptures would go back on the shelf and that's where they would stay for a week until I went to church again and pulled them off the shelf and took them once again to church with me to repeat the process. But I had an important experience about two months after I joined the church. It was probably around August or September of 1978, and this was a turning point in my life. It was a very simple thing, it was a very small thing, but it was very impactful to me. Here's what happened. It was a Monday evening, and a group of us, young adults, had gone over to a friend's house to have family home evening. This friend's name was Jay Simmons. He also was a recent convert to the church. He was a few years older than I, and he was living by himself in a small house. That's where we went for the family home evening. Family home evening was done, we left, we went back to the cars, I remembered that I had left something back at his house. So I walked back to his house. Now, it was nighttime, it was warm out, which is why I remember it as being in August or possibly early September of 1978. I'm walking back to Jay's house. His door is open, the screen door is closed, but his door is open. The light is on inside his house. So as I'm approaching, I can see inside his house. And what I saw shocked me. What I saw was Jay Simmons in his house, alone, everybody's left, remember. He's alone, he's lying on his couch in the living room, and he has the scriptures open in front of him, and he is reading them. I was shocked by this, and the reason I was shocked is because this was a revelation to me. You mean that scriptures were something that a member of the church could actually read on their own, and not just take them to church and open them up to look at the scriptures that are being talked about in class. No, this was something completely new to me. And it changed my entire perspective on studying the scriptures. As I say, it was a small thing, but very impactful. It was one of those things that I can look back on in my life and see it distinctly as a turning point for me. Well, after that, I took myself to studying the scriptures on my own. I've already told the story in a prior podcast about how I read through the Book of Mormon the first time when I was 18 years old. And I did this because my bishop told me that I basically had to do this in order to get my patriarchal blessing. So I not only read through the Book of Mormon, I prayed my way through the Book of Mormon. And that was the experience where I gained a foundational testimony of the truth of the Book of Mormon. The next scripture I tried to read was the New Testament. And I did read through the New Testament. I found some parts of the New Testament easier to understand than other parts of the New Testament. And under the other parts category, I would include all of the epistles of Paul and the book of Revelation. There were other things I didn't understand, but those were the main blocks that I had trouble with. So I thought, I need some help understanding what's going on here in the New Testament. And what I found was a book titled, A Marvelous Work in a Wonder by Legrand Richards. This was a very popular book 40 years ago, and it was found in almost every Mormon household. I got a copy of this book, and I read it from beginning to end. And what it did was, it helped me understand how the Bible, both the Old Testament, but also the New Testament especially, supports Mormon doctrine. The book A Marvelous Work and a Wonder was just one of the books in the missionary library. Now, the missionary library was a collection of books that was put out by the church. It was a boxed set. And 40 years ago, the missionary library consisted of 10 
books. I checked it up on the internet to see what the missionary library consists of today, and actually it's been reduced now to just four books. In the missionary library, the idea is that these are books that missionaries can read while they're on their mission. Of course, that depends upon the individual mission president, but basically these are the approved set of books for missionaries to read. So I got the box set of the missionary library. It wasn't terribly expensive. They were all in paperback versions. But these books consisted of, and I'm doing this from memory now, I put the list together from memory, A Marvelous Work and a Wonder, Jesus the Christ, The Articles of Faith, both of those two books were seminal works by James E. Talmadge and very thick, Gospel Principles, which was a collection of teachings by Joseph F. Smith, Discourses of Brigham Young, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, three of the volumes were The Doctrines of Salvation, by Joseph Fielding Smith. That was a collection of his teachings, volumes one, two, and three. So that's why it's three separate books in the missionary library. And the 10th and final book was The Miracle of Forgiveness by Spencer W. Kimball. That also was a very important book back 40 years ago. And it was a book that was written by a contemporary president of the church. So it was very popular. I did not read all of these books at the time. As I said, I read A Marvelous Work and a Wonder, Jesus the Christ, I ended up reading on my mission. I did read the Articles of Faith by James Talmadge before my mission. I read the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith also before my mission, and I'll tell a story about that here in a second. But before that, I want to mention The Miracle of Forgiveness, which I read before my mission as well. That book had some pros and cons. On the downside, I did experience a lot of guilt from reading The Miracle of Forgiveness. But on the plus side, I did find out that Bigfoot was Cain. And this was huge for me. First off, I found out that Bigfoot was real. Bigfoot was real. And not only was he real, it was something that my church taught me was real. And on top of that, I found out what his first name was. His first name was Cain. So I was able to find out from The Miracle of Forgiveness, not only that Bigfoot really existed, but that he was Cain from the Old Testament. And this was part of the allure of Mormonism for me, was that Mormonism 40 years ago presented itself as having the answers to all the questions. It didn't make any difference what the question was. Mormonism had an answer for it, even on a question as far afield from religion as one might think as the existence of Bigfoot and his identity. And in fact, this idea that Mormonism had an answer for everything was embodied in a separate book called Mormon Doctrine. Now, Mormon Doctrine was written by Bruce R. McConkie. And Bruce R. McConkie was the reigning scriptorian of the time. You see, I joined the church when there were actually scriptorians in the church. There were models that we were supposed to pattern ourselves after. Before Bruce R. McConkie, the scriptorian in the church had been his father-in-law, Joseph Fielding Smith. And his teachings were represented in the Missionary Library by those three volumes of Doctrines of Salvation, which I've talked to you about. And actually, if you look at Doctrines of Salvation, you'll see that that's a compilation that was edited by his son-in-law, Bruce R. McConkie. Well, Bruce R. McConkie had produced this book called Mormon Doctrine. I think probably all of you are familiar with it. It takes all the doctrines of Mormonism and arranges them alphabetically and topically in this book. It is basically a huge reference book where you can look up any doctrine or any concept that you want relating to Mormonism and you can find the answer. Now, I found out later that there was some controversy amongst the leadership regarding the publication of this book. But at the time, 
And amongst the lay members of the church, I will guarantee you, we were completely unaware of any controversy, and this book contained exactly what its title indicated. This was Mormon Doctrine. And when I joined the church, Mormon Doctrine was pretty much present in every sacrament meeting and other church meetings, because when any member of the church got assigned a certain subject to talk about in sacrament meeting, the first thing they did was they went home, they opened up their copy of Mormon Doctrine, they looked up the subject, and then they came to church and pretty much read from Mormon Doctrine on the subject that they were assigned to talk about. It was in this way that Mormon Doctrine assumed the role of the fifth standard work of the church. Now, as you know, within the past few years, Mormon doctrine has actually been taken off the shelves by Deseret Book. It has been retired from usage. But this also tends to show the shift from the Mormonism that I joined to the Mormonism of today. When I joined the church, there were living scriptorians in the church. These were the giants who bestrode the doctrinal world like a colossus. And Bruce R. McConkie wrote a number of books dealing with Mormon doctrine. He spoke in every general conference dealing with doctrinal subjects. He was very powerful. He was very authoritative. He was the person that members of the church looked to to define what Mormon doctrine was. But today in Mormonism, there are no more scriptorians amongst the leadership of the church. They seem to have gone the way of the dodo. Apologies to Elder Holland. There are no more scriptorians in the church. We are not encouraged to be scriptorians anymore, and there are no such people in the church after which we are to pattern ourselves who would serve as a role model for us. But as I say, things were very different when I joined the church back in 1978. Oh yes, back to the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. I read this book before my mission. It was during a time when I was working as a night watchman in the winter of 1978-1979. So I was at work from 11 o'clock at night to 7 o'clock in the morning, and I had plenty of time to read. And one of the books that I took with me to work was the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. I remember distinctly reading that book, and particularly the last few pages of the book, where the King Follett Discourse is included. And I remember reading that book and feeling the power of what Joseph Smith was teaching coming off the pages of that book and hitting me in the face like a blast of wind. I remember thinking about the Peanuts characters, Lucy and Linus. Linus is Lucy's little brother and sometimes she'll yell at him and she'll yell at him so hard that his hair will be blown straight back from his head. Well, that was the image that I had in my mind when I was reading the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, the King Follett Discourse. The doctrines he was teaching were so powerful that I felt the spirit coming off the page of the book and blowing my hair straight back, figuratively speaking, of course. And I remember reading the words of it and how Joseph Smith was saying that some were calling him a false prophet, but that he would prove by this sermon that he was not a fallen prophet, but that he was a true prophet. And the experience I had while reading it was testifying to me, as I understood it, was testifying to me that indeed he was a true prophet of God. At some point prior to my mission, I turned my attention to the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament was extremely daunting. It is a big, thick collection of books and written in a way that is not easy to understand. So I once again knew that I needed some help. And what I turned to for help was a series of books written by Cleon Skousen. He wrote three books dealing with Old Testament 
time period from the beginning with Adam all the way down to the intertestamental period up to Jesus. Now, according to the Bible chronology, which was largely accepted by Mormons, at least at the time, that was a period of 4,000 years between Adam and Jesus. It was 4,000 years. His first book covered the first 2,000 years, and it was called The First 2,000 Years. His second book was called The Third Thousand Years, and his third book was called The Fourth Thousand Years. Now, the first of those volumes was just a few hundred pages. The second was much larger, and the third was larger still, something approaching the size of a Stephen King novel. And I'm not talking Carrie or Cujo Stephen King. I'm talking It or Tommyknockers Stephen King. So I read through those books as I made my way through the Old Testament. And those books were a huge help to me to understanding what the stories were in the Old Testament. And frankly, it also helped me to understand that the Old Testament also was consistent with Mormonism, just as LeGrand Richards with his book, A Marvelous Work and a Wonder, helped me to see that the New Testament was also consistent with Mormonism. There are many more things that I could say about my time period studying the church before my mission, but suffice it to say at this point that I probably read 15 to 20 books during that time period. Now that was a huge amount of books for me. Prior to joining the church, I really was not a big reader, but I gained a passion for studying Mormonism and studying religion after I joined the church. In fact, it was the first great passion in my life as far as research and study. And that passion would continue for the next 40 years and in fact is still very much with me today. I still spend a great deal of time studying Mormonism, the scriptures, and other things related to the LDS church. When I was on my mission, of course, I had a number of other things I had to be doing. I had to be proselyting. I had to be studying Japanese so I could communicate with people. But on top of that, I made time for reading other books related to Mormonism. It was on my mission that I read Jesus the Christ, as I mentioned. And I also was able to smuggle in some books from the States to study, which were not actually approved by the mission president. Our mission president approved only Jesus the Christ and the Articles of Faith by James Talmadge. I had a friend send me the autobiography of Parley P. Pratt, which I read while I was on my mission. I loved that book. I've also read it again since then. Another book that I had smuggled into me was Bruce R. McConkie's Doctrinal New Testament Commentary, which are three volumes going over the New Testament and basically showing how the New Testament teaches you guessed it, Mormonism. While I was on my mission, every morning, the missionaries would gather together for what was called group scripture study. And we would read through the scriptures according to a plan and a schedule that had been predetermined and sent out by the mission president so that we would read a certain pre-assigned block of scriptures every day. And we would make our way through the scriptures. I don't think that we read the entirety of the Old Testament in this. We probably just read Genesis and maybe Exodus, maybe a couple of other selected parts. But after that, we went all the way through the New Testament, all the way through the Book of Mormon, all the way through the Doctrine and Covenants, and all the way through the Pearl of Great Price. And then when we got to the end, we'd recycle and start again. So that process took me several times through the scriptures. I marked up my scriptures. I tried to understand them as best I could. I found that as I read them more, I understood them better. Another book or set of books that I got on my mission was called Answers to Gospel Questions. This is a five-volume set 
written by Joseph Fielding Smith. And what it is is actually a collection of articles that were written by Joseph Fielding Smith for the Improvement Era. The Improvement Era was the name of the enzyme before it was the enzyme. And what he would do is every month when the new Improvement Era would come out, there would be a certain question that he would address. He put the question up there and then he put his answer after it. Once again, this was in the day of scriptorians in the church, and Joseph Fielding Smith was considered to be the preeminent scriptorian in the church while he was alive. And as I've said, Bruce R. McConkie picked up the mantle after Joseph Fielding Smith passed away in the early 1970s. But after Bruce R. McConkie, there has been no one left to fill his shoes. There were many questions that were answered in this book, Answers to Gospel Questions. And the ones I liked the most were those that had to do with criticisms of the church because Joseph Fielding Smith would not shy away from questions critical of the church. Now, sometimes in retrospect, his answers were not really, uh, (laughs) were not necessarily accurate or full or complete or fair to the evidence, but at least he answered them. And I was reading these. I was eating these up like popcorn, these questions and the answers from Joseph Fielding Smith. I love these books. And I began to gravitate toward wanting to be the guy who could answer the questions that people had about the church and respond to the criticisms that people had about the church. I wanted to be the Bible answer man for the Mormon church. I wanted to become another Joseph Fielding Smith. I wanted to try and become another Bruce R. McConkie. I knew I had a long way to go, but these were my role models that I tried to pattern myself after. I began trying to memorize certain facts and lists from the scriptures. For example, at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, we read about the 10 patriarchs from Adam down to Noah. And what I wanted to do for no particular reason was to memorize the names of the 10 patriarchs in order. And what I did was I came up with a mnemonic device in order to allow me to do that. And the mnemonic device that I came up with was this. Here's the sentence, all right? A snake eating cabbage might jar enough men last night. Now that makes absolutely no sense. A snake eating cabbage might jar enough men last night, but I could remember that sentence. And if I remember that sentence, then I knew that the first letter of each word in that sentence stood for the first letter of each of the 10 patriarchs in order. And I could remember that it stood for Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahalaleel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Now, the funny thing is, is that mnemonic device was so effective that within the past month of when I'm recording, I had a friend of mine who was doing a crossword puzzle ask me who the father of Jared was. And I couldn't do it off the top of my head, but what I did was I sat down with a pen and paper on a napkin. I wrote out, a snake-eating cabbage might jar enough men last night. And then I wrote down the names of each of the patriarchs in order and told my friend that the father of Jared was Mahalaleel. That's one of those things that, frankly, I probably use just to show off a little bit. I also have to confess that when we were reading through the scriptures as missionaries, I took my marker and I made a point to mark something on every page of the scriptures. It didn't really make any difference if I thought it was worth marking. I wanted to mark something on every page of the scriptures because I envisioned a time later on down the road when I would be back from my mission, I would be in church, I would be at a fireside, and the scriptures would be opened, and I'd be thumbing through my scriptures, and the person sitting next to me, whoever that person might be, would look over and see my scriptures and think, wow, this guy has something marked on every page. He must really know his scriptures. 
So at that time, I can see that I was probably going for more form over substance when it came to my scripture study, trying to give the impression of knowing the scriptures without really knowing them. In my defense, though, as time would progress, I got more into the substance rather than the form. Oh, and I came up with a game related to the Book of Mormon to try and test my knowledge of the Book of Mormon. And here was the game. I would give the Book of Mormon to another missionary. I would have him close his eyes, open it up anywhere he wanted to in the Book of Mormon, but he couldn't look, to plant his finger down on the page, and then to read out loud the scripture verse on which his finger fell. So it was a way of randomly picking a verse in the Book of Mormon is what it amounts to. I would be in the room, but I would have my back turned while he was doing this. So the idea was for him to pick a random verse in the Book of Mormon, and then my job was to try and identify what chapter, what book and chapter in the Book of Mormon this verse came from. And I was probably effective maybe 50% of the time. I definitely needed to brush up my skills. But one thing I found out was not only that I was beginning to develop an understanding of the Book of Mormon and its context and where different verses were and where different stories came in, but also I came to understand that even if I could get maybe 50%, maybe even less than 50% of these right, I was given credit by the other missionaries for having a knowledge of the scriptures and a knowledge of the Book of Mormon that was far in excess of what my ability actually was. There was an apocryphal story that circulated about Bruce R. McConkie that anybody could name any verse in any of the standard works and that Bruce R. McConkie could then quote the verse immediately preceding and the verse immediately after that verse. Now, in retrospect, I think that that was an apocryphal story. I don't know of any instance where Bruce R. McConkie actually demonstrated that ability, but it was a story that circulated about him, and I think that this was probably another example of how it is that missionaries and other members of the church would attribute to Bruce R. McConkie a knowledge of the scriptures that was far in excess of what his knowledge and abilities actually were. Now, his knowledge and abilities were extraordinary. I don't mean to detract from that, but when you have a certain knowledge of the scriptures, even though it is not that great, if it's greater than other people's, then they're going to think you're a genius. And so I lived and thrived off that reputation when I was on my mission. And when I got back from my mission, I wanted to continue in that vein. I wanted to learn more and more about the scriptures. It was like a burning fire inside of me. So one of the things I did after I got back from my mission is that I obtained all the different institute manuals related to the standard works. There's a huge, thick institute manual for the Old Testament, another one for the New Testament, another one for the Doctrine and Covenants. And what I did was I read through each of the standard works in company with reading the institute manual. And it was a very helpful experience to me. I remember that many of the quotes and sayings in the Institute Manual helped me to understand what it was that I was reading in the standard works. Now, on the other hand, it started to become apparent to me that there were questions that were raised by my reading of the scriptures that were not answered by the materials in the Institute Manuals. Now, I can't really remember any specific examples of that, but I do remember that sometimes I would have a question about what something meant and would go to the Institute Manual to read along and find that my question was not answered, even though it seemed to be a, an obvious question that was raised by the text. It was not answered. And in other situations, an answer might be attempted, but it seemed to me to be an inadequate 
answer or an answer that didn't really make sense based upon the language of the text. Nevertheless, that was something else that I did. This is in the early 80s now when I'm back from my mission and going to college as an undergraduate at the University of Texas at Austin. I also attended institute class. There was an institute building. It was just off the campus and I attended an institute class every semester. One of the first institute classes that I attended when I was at college was a class that was specially made. It was conducted by the director of the institute, whose name was Brother Sill. He was a great guy. He was very nice, very smart, very intelligent. And he was doing a special class on a new book that had just come out by Hugh Nibley. And that new book was titled Abraham in Egypt. And I still remember that there were actually requirements in order to get into this class, a person either had to be a graduate student, which I was not, I was just an undergrad, or they had to be a return missionary. Well, I was a return missionary, so I could get in on that. Now, it was very interesting thinking about this now in retrospect, that those requirements were put on being admitted into this class on the book of Abraham. And looking back on it and having just completed three episodes with Bill Reel on the book of Abraham, I can see why it is that they didn't necessarily want to expose other people to this subject. But as I say, the course of study for this class was this new book called Abraham in Egypt by Hugh Nibley. And I understood the first chapter pretty well. Of course, the first chapter was just a republication of an old Improvement Era article, as I recall. So it was written for a lay Mormon. I think I understood that okay. But after that, all the other chapters, I couldn't make heads or tails of. It was the typical apologetic writing on the book of Abraham that was so predominant at the time and that was really made so famous by Hugh Nibley. But at the end of this class, I had another of those experiences that was a turning point for me because at the end of the class, we didn't have a test. You know, you don't really have tests in institute class. At least we didn't back then. You went, you learned. It was basically another church meeting that you had during the week in addition to your studies at college. You could go and have an institute class and you were encouraged to have an institute class. And so, of course, I did have an institute class. But at the end of this institute class, there actually was a requirement. And the requirement was for each member of the class to do a presentation on some aspect of the book of Abraham. Now, by this time, I have been a member of the church for about four years. Two of those have been on a mission. I've done a lot of reading. I've done a lot of research. And I have basically come to the understanding that the point in Mormonism of doing a presentation is to say only what has been said before and to support what you're saying by those who have said it before. Really saying something new is not part of the game plan when it comes to making a presentation or writing a paper related to Mormonism. This is my mindset at the time. So when I gave my presentation on the book of Abraham at the end of this institute class, it was nothing new, it was nothing novel, it was just more of the same. I can't even remember what the subject matter was of my presentation. What I do remember, however, and what the turning point was for me, was that there was another member of the class whose name was David Knowlton. Now, some of you may recognize that name, David Knowlton. He went on to be a professor at BYU whose contract was not renewed because of some of the things that he was publishing and saying about Mormonism. My understanding is, is that he has now gone on to find a home as a professor at UVU, and I certainly wish him all the best. But getting back to my story, 
When the time came for David Knowlton to make his presentation on the Book of Abraham, what he did was he didn't go back to what others had said about it. He wasn't quoting the presidents of the church. He wasn't quoting the history books. What he did was a completely new and creative take on some aspect of the Book of Abraham. And once again, I can't remember what it is that he said. All I remember was that it was completely new and creative. He was seeing things himself and presenting them to the class. And the things that he saw made sense. And I remember being so enthusiastic about his presentation that I went up to him afterward and I shook his hand and I heartily congratulated him and told him how great his presentation was. And I remember him being somewhat taken aback and surprised at my enthusiasm, but he thanked me. Uh, And looking back on this though, the huge thing about this experience was that I suddenly realized that it was not only okay, but a good thing and a powerful thing and an important thing to be able to look at the scriptures and the history and Mormonism with new eyes and to be able to put old pieces together in new ways and thereby see new things. So during the early part of the 1980s, what I did was I immersed myself in books about Mormonism as well as in the scriptures as well as an institute class. Now this is not my field of study. I'm studying dance and I'm pursuing a Bachelor of Arts degree at the University of Texas at Austin. This is all in my spare time. This is my hobby. This is my passion. This is what I am fascinated by and I feel that in doing this I am following the admonitions of church leaders in order to become a scriptorian. One of my primary concerns during the 1980s was Mormon apologetics. Now, I will probably do a separate podcast on my career as a Mormon apologist, but suffice it to say that there is no better way of getting into the guts of church history and church doctrine than to get into Mormon apologetics, because by doing that, you necessarily encounter all the criticisms against Mormonism And of course, you want to come up with the correct and faith-promoting answers to those criticisms. But before you come up with the faith-promoting answers, you have to deal with the criticisms. And the criticisms reveal to you the problematic issues in Mormon history. At least they did to me. And at the time, I felt that I was able to come up with satisfying answers to those questions. So I had a very active career during the whole of the 1980s in Mormon apologetics. But while I'm doing this, I'm also reading other books about the church. Let me tell you this little story to illustrate. I had a part-time job working at Foley's department store at the newly constructed mall in Austin, Texas. And I didn't earn a lot of money there, but what I would do is every week I would take whatever money I had saved and had left over and I would drive to a local LDS bookstore and I would use that money to buy books about Mormonism. And the books that I was primarily interested in were doctrinal books or history books. I wasn't really so much interested in the fluff or the feel-good kind of books that are so prevalent in Mormon bookstores. I wanted the hard stuff. And I would buy up whatever books I could with whatever money I had. I would take them back home and I would read them during the week. And then the next week or the next two weeks, whenever I got paid again, I'd take whatever money I'd saved. I'd make the same trip. I'd go through the same process. And in the course of time, I ended up reading and having quite a number of books in my room. Now, I didn't have any bookshelves, so I just stacked them one on top of the other. I had different stacks of books related to Mormonism in my room. That was really all that I was reading, except maybe what I was required to read as part of my classes in college. 
And I remember on one birthday, I had some money that I got for my birthday and I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to get a bookshelf. So I took that money, went to a store, got a bookshelf. It wasn't a tall bookshelf. It was really just one of these double-decker, two-tiered things. Put it together because it wasn't even assembled. I put it together and then I put all of my books up there in the bookshelf. I arranged them alphabetically. All these books related to Mormonism that I had been collecting and reading as I went along. And I remember standing back, putting my hands on my hips and just gazing at it with great satisfaction. This is how much books about Mormonism and my studies of Mormonism meant to me at the time. I also spent a lot of time memorizing scriptures. Now, I had joined the church out of high school, so I completely missed the seminary program. But back then, the seminary program had a very active scripture mastery program for each of the four standard works. And by that, I mean the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, and the Doctrine and Covenants. There were a set of scripture mastery cards, which was a collection of small cards. They were 40 in number, four zero in number, for each of those books of scripture. Today, they've reduced that number to 25. Back then, it was 40. And while I was working at this department store up at the mall, frequently I was there during the weekday. There wasn't a lot going on. There weren't a lot of customers. I had a lot of downtime. So I would walk back and forth through the men's clothing department, and I would have 40 scripture cards on a ring, and I would spend the time memorizing the 40 scriptures for the Old Testament with their references, the 40 scriptures from the New Testament with their references, and so on for the Book of Mormon and also for the Doctrine and Covenants. And I spent a great deal of time memorizing scriptures. So, so much so, <laughs> so much so was this the case that I actually still remember I would be in bed, it would be nighttime, I had a digital clock with red numbers, and sometimes those numbers would line up with a scripture. For instance, when it was 11 minutes after 11 at night, it would show 11-11. And the thought that would come to my mind was 1 Corinthians 11-11, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. That's how much I was into scripture mastery and scripture memorization at the time. But as I read through these stacks and stacks of books about Mormonism, the one thing I came to understand was that even though Mormonism and Mormon doctrine was a very diverse and multifaceted subject, there were limits to it. And as I read more and more books, I came to see that the books were simply repeating what I had read before. And I began to map out in my mind the boundaries of Mormon doctrine. There were certain things that were taught, certain things that were approved, and beyond that, there were dragons there. You were not really supposed to go beyond that. You could know what the general authorities knew and taught, but you weren't supposed to know anything beyond what the general authorities knew and taught. And as I came to understand this and see this in the books, I stopped really being interested in the books that were authored by general authorities because they were extremely limited in the subjects that they addressed and in the scope of those subjects. And I started going out to other people, other scholars. I remember that there was a series of books called the Sidney Sperry Symposium books. Every year they would have a symposium at BYU named in honor of Sidney Sperry, who was an early church scholar back in the 1940s. He was a professor at BYU. So they would have this yearly symposium in his name and different scholars, most of them professors from BYU, would present papers and then they'd be collected and published in one volume called the Sidney B. Sperry Symposium and they would have all these different papers in it. And I loved getting those. Every time I go to the bookstore and I'd see a new one of those, I'd say, hallelujah, give me that one. I want to read that. So I would read these scholarly articles, 
by these professors. And this is part of my attempt to learn more and more about Mormonism beyond simply the correlated material. I didn't even know it was correlated at the time, but beyond the correlated material, the approved material for church meetings, the approved material, which is what the general authorities talked about only. And as I read more and more of these papers, I came to start to see the same thing among these professors, that by and large, these BYU professors, even though they're talking from a scholarly platform with a scholarly background, would still, for the most part, be simply repeating the same information. Every now and then there would be a professor who would make a new journey into something new or try and do what David Knowlton had done, which is look at things from a new perspective, put things together in a new way, maybe present information that I didn't know about before or dig up something else. So I continued to read these in order to find out these new aspects, these new nuggets, these new kernels of information that would expand my knowledge of Mormonism. And I remember that one of the authors the preeminent author that I was interested in was Joseph Fielding McConkie, who himself was a son of Bruce R. McConkie and who wrote a number of books during this time period. I would get every book that Joseph Fielding McConkie wrote and I would read through it. Now, for the most part, Joseph Fielding McConkie was repeating things that had been said before, but in every book there were at least a handful of nuggets of things that he came up with on his own, which I thought were useful and penetrating insights that helped me understand Mormonism more, and which I added to my storehouse of information. Well, looking at the clock, I'm quite a ways into this podcast already, and I'm really not even to the point of where I begin publishing in Mormonism. So let me start abbreviating this account and telling you that by the end of the 1980s, I have now familiarized myself sufficiently with the scriptures and familiarized myself sufficiently with the literature of Mormonism relating to the scriptures and relating to Mormon history that I'm able to start seeing connections of my own which are separate from and independent of the sources that I am reading. In other words, I have found myself at the point at which David Knowlton had been at the beginning of the 1980s when he gave his presentation on the book of Abraham, which had so influenced me. One of the first things that I saw, and I wrote a paper about it, was called the Endowment of the Pentateuch. Now, the Pentateuch is the Greek name for the first five books of the Old Testament. The Endowment, of course, is the Temple Endowment. And what I began to see, or thought I saw, was in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, that there was, in the history of the Jewish people that's related there, could be seen a symbolic recreation of what we have in the Temple as the endowment. Now, I'm not going to go into detail as to what that was about. I will tell you that I was very excited about it. Here I'm seeing something that, as far as I know, nobody else has seen before. I write a paper about it. I submit it to Farms. I didn't mention Farms, the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies, which was going great guns in the 1980s. This was a clearinghouse for scholarly articles, and a lot of them were apologetic articles about the LDS Church and the Book of Mormon. Well, you could get those for the cost of printing, so they were very inexpensive. I ordered just about every single thing that the farms group produced. And so I had a number of loose leaf binders that were three hole punch with these articles put in and I read through all those as well. Okay, so that's just another aspect of what I was studying in the 1980s. I studied pretty much every apologetic piece of literature I could get my hands on in the 1980s. But because of that, I went ahead and took this paper that I had written up, the Endowment of the Pentateuch, and submitted it to Farms and got a nice rejection letter signed by John Sorensen. He was not very impressed with it, and I was kind of deflated because I had thought this was pretty special. But John Sorensen, who was a big deal, who had just recently, as of that point, 
published his important book, An Ancient American Setting for the Book of Mormon. That came out, I think, in 1985 or so. This is in the latter part of the 1980s that I sent him this letter, and he told me why it was that he didn't think much of my paper. Not being satisfied with his opinion, I went ahead and thought, who else could I send this to? Well, I really, really appreciate Joseph Fielding McConkie for the reasons I've stated before, so I sent a copy of it to him with a cover letter. And he was nice enough to read it, and he sent me back a letter which was handwritten on Brigham Young University uh, letterhead because he was a professor there in the School of Religious Instruction. He sent me back a letter which I have a copy of to this day. I didn't keep the John L. Sorensen one. That's probably because it was kind of negative. (laughs) But this one was more positive, so I kept this one. Here's what it says. August 20th, 1988. This is in his handwriting. Dear Brother Radio Free Mormon, I received and read your article, The Endowment of the Pentateuch, with interest. I have been slow to respond because I have been hoping to catch someone around here who might have a suggestion for you as to where it might be published. It would be a couple of weeks, or it will be a couple of weeks, before everyone is back. So should I learn something that will be of help to you, I will drop you a note. And then he adds this very nice comment. I think you think well. He says, I think you think well and write well and would encourage you to continue to do both. Doing so with the realization that there isn't much of a market for either among most in the church at the present time. I suppose we are too busy going to meetings as ever, Joseph F. McConkie. So it was very kind of him to write me this letter and to give me encouragement and also to make a notation that really there doesn't seem to be much of a market among the Mormons for thinking well or writing well at the present time because he supposed we're just too busy going to meetings, which gives an indication as to his feelings about the state of learning amongst Mormons in general. And it was a feeling that really seconded the feeling that I had been developing for some time as well. Oh my gosh, during this time period, I just remembered I had also done a couple of independent research projects on small issues in the church, one of them having to do with the state of the spirit between death and the resurrection. The reason I did that is because my brother's a Jehovah's Witness and they believe that there is no existence independent for the spirit between death and the resurrection. So I wanted to see what the Bible said about it. And I went and did a study of that and I wrote a paper about it. And then I recorded it because it came to my attention that there was a Latter-day Saint company. It was called Tree of Life Productions at the time. It was a a mom and pop shop that produced audio tapes, cassette tapes of people speaking on different subjects. And so I thought I would tape this, submit it to them and see if they wanted to publish it. Lo and behold, they did. And it was actually for a brief period of time out in church bookstores. It was quite a kick to go to the church bookstore and see a tape with my name on it that was for sale. They didn't do great. I didn't make a dime off of it, but it was a lot of fun. I did that tape, and I also did a separate independent tape dealing with the teaching of eternal marriage in the New Testament. I did a separate research project on that, did a presentation at church, taped it, submitted it. They published that as well. They were obviously desperate for anything to publish, and and I think they've since gone completely bankrupt because I can't find any record of them on the internet. So I hope they're doing well. I wish them the best. It was a great time, and they were very nice to me. There were a number of other projects that I did and manuscripts that I wrote during this time period. They have more to do, I think, with my apologetic career, which, as I say, I'm going to cover in a separate podcast. I just want to mention them in passing because this has to do with my researches in Mormonism, once again, in the context of dealing with the issue that this month, February of 2019, I'm still trying to process the fact that Elder Dallin H. Oaks of the First Presidency said, research is not 
the answer. But that paper, The Endowment of the Pentateuch, went absolutely nowhere, but I continued to see things. And at the end of the 1980s, beginning of 1990s, as I'm reading the Book of Mormon, I begin to see connections there. New connections. Connections that, as far as I can tell, nobody else has made before, relating to a certain aspect of it. Now, I apologize, because at this point, I can't really go into detail. You're probably going, thank goodness, he can't go into detail about it. Maybe sometime in the future, I will be able to. But at this point, if I go into detail about it and talk about getting it published, it will be, I think, probably too obvious an indicator as to my real life identity, which at the present time, I'm still trying to keep under wraps and fly under the radar. Suffice it to say that I write another paper, submit it to the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, which was the flagship publication at the time of the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies. They publish it in the early 1990s. I'm encouraged by this. I see another issue related to the Book of Mormon, which I want to investigate. I read the Book of Mormon again. I write another paper dealing with this separate issue. I submit it to the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. They publish that as well. I then write a third paper, which is basically a sequel to the second paper, which I thought was very, very good and very interesting. I submit it to the journal. They go thumbs down on that one and say thanks, but no thanks. So that was pretty much my career with the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. I continued to go on researching. I continued with my writing, and I will simply say that even though I did not publish any more papers with the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. In the following decade of the 2000s, by which I mean from 2000 to 2010, I did publish one paper with BYU Studies. And then in the following decade, which is this decade, the 2010s, I have had another paper published at BYU Studies. Once again, I can't go into the details of any of those papers because it would be too obvious in leading to my real life identity. The reason I make note of this is simply to say that I have been extremely active. I have spent my entire adult life, in addition to my education at college, in addition to my career in law, studying Mormonism. I have read hundreds of books on the subject. I have spent thousands of hours writing, reading, studying, researching Elder Oaks, researching Mormonism, and being published on the subject. So hopefully that will give you an idea as to why it is that I felt troubled when after having spent my entire adult life researching Mormonism, to have Elder Oaks say, research is not the answer. It is a troubling thing to have the leaders of the church tell me that I needed to be a scriptorian, that I needed to research Mormonism, that research was the answer when I was 18. To take that seriously, to spend my entire adult life doing exactly as I was directed, only to come to 2019, 40 years later, and have the church say, we didn't really mean it. Psych! On the one hand, it makes me think, well, what else could I have done in my life if I wasn't spending all this time researching Mormonism as I had been directed to do. But really, on the other hand, I have to admit in fairness that Mormonism and the studies that it led me to were something that I was passionate about, passionate about for 40 years and continue to be passionate about today. And that is something that is rare enough that happens in a person's life. And I am grateful to the LDS Church for that. So there are two sides to that coin. So even though Elder Oaks is now saying that research is not the answer, I am glad that I joined the church at a time when research was the answer, when we were encouraged to be scriptorians, and I am grateful for all the joy that I have received in four decades of studying Mormonism, 
which has led into studying church history, which has led into studying the Old Testament, which has led into studying the New Testament, which has led into studying Egyptology, of all things, which has led into studying the Pseudepigrapha, which has led into studying the Apocrypha, which has led into opening a wide world, a wide world of research and exploration for me, which I would not trade for the world. So even though Elder Oaks is now saying research is not the answer, I want to tell you, Elder Oaks, you can't take that away from me. I am glad for all the time and all the effort and all the hours that I have spent researching Mormonism and related subjects over the past 40 years. And Elder Oaks, I am going to continue to study Mormonism for the next 40 years, if God give me the opportunity. And I am going to continue podcasting about my studies of Mormonism as long as people want to hear what I have to say. And so, in honor of Elder Oaks, I am going to close out this podcast with Frank Sinatra singing the George Gershwin classic, You Can't Take That Away From Me. This one's for you, Dallin. This is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. There are many, many crazy things that will keep me loving you. And with your permission, may I list a few. The way you wear your hat, the way you sip your tea, the memory of all that. No, no, they can't take that away from me, the way your smile just beams, the way you sing off key, the way you haunt my dreams. No, no, they can't take that away from me, we may never, never meet again on that bumpy road to love. Still I'll always, always keep the memory of The way you hold your knife Do-do-do-do-do-doop The way we danced until three The way you've changed my life No, no, they can't take that away from me No, they can't take that away from